0: Welcome to my podcast. PodTunes is the perfect way to fall asleep while listening to the best horror, history, and true crime stories. This podcast is presented by Bed Temporis, bedtime stories that will keep you up at night. Last week we dove into Ian Brady and Myra Hindley's heinous crimes together, which became known as the Moore's Murders. Today we will be covering the arrest, initial analysis, and later investigation, and wrapping up with the incarceration of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. This episode includes discussion about murder, sexual assault, listener discretion is advised Myra's stepdad, Smith, agreed to return the following morning with his baby's stroller for use in transporting Evan's body to the car before disposing it on the moor. He arrived home at about 3 a.m. and asked his wife to make a cup of tea, which he drank before vomiting and telling her what he'd witnessed. At 6.10 a.m., having waited for daylight and armed himself with a screwdriver and a bread knife in case Brady was planning to intercept him, Smith called police from a phone box on the estate. He was picked up by a police car from the phone box and taken to Hyde Police Station, where he told officers what he had witnessed that night. Superintendent Bob Talbot of the Stalybridge Bridge Police Division went to Wardlebrook Avenue, accompanied by a detective sergeant wearing a bread delivery man's overall on top of his uniform. He asked Tinley at the back of the door if her husband was home. When she denied that she had a husband or that there was a man inside the house, Talbot identified himself. Henley led him into the living room where Brady was lying on the sofa writing to his employer about his ankle injury. Talbot explained that he was there investigating an act of violence involving guns that was reported to have taken place the previous evening. Myra denied that there had been any violence and allowed police to take a look around the house. When police asked her for the key in the locked spare room, she said it was at her workplace but she could offer police to take her to retrieve it. Ian told her to hand it over. When police returned to the living room, they arrested Brady on suspicion of murder. As Brady was getting dressed, he said, quote, Eddie and I had a row and the situation got out of hand, end quote. Though Henley was not Initially arrested, she demanded to go with Brady to the police station, taking her dog. She refused to make any statement about Evan's death beyond claiming it to have been an accident and was allowed to go home on the condition that she returned the next day. Over the next four days, Hinley visited her employer and asked to be dismissed so that she would be eligible for unemployment benefits. On one of these occasions, she found an envelope belonging to Brady, which she burned in an ashtray. She claimed she did not open it, but believed it contained plans for bank robberies. On October 11th, she was too arrested and taken into custody, being charged as an accessory to the murder of Evans and was remanded at His Majesty's Prison, Risley.
1: Police searching the house at Wardlebrook Avenue found an old exercise book with the name John Kilbride, which made them suspect that Brady and Henley had been involved in the disappearance of other youngsters. Brady told police that he and Evans had fought, but insisted that he and Smith had murdered Evans and that Henley had only done what she had been told. Smith said that Brady had asked him to return anything incriminating, such as dodgy books, which Brady then packed into suitcases. He had no idea what else the suitcases contained or where they might be, though he mentioned that Brady had a thing about railway stations. A search of left luggage offices turned up at the suitcases at Manchester Central Railway Station on October 15th. The claim ticket was later found in Henley's prayer book. Inside one of the cases were, among an assortment of costumes, notes, photographs, and negatives, nine pornographic photographs taken of Downey, naked with a scarf tied across her mouth, and a 16-minute audio tape recording of a girl identifying herself as Leslie Ann Weston, screaming, crying, and pleading to be allowed to return home to her mother. Downey's mother later confirmed that the recording, too, was of her daughter. Officers making inquiries at neighboring houses who spoke to 12-year-old Patricia Hodges, who had on several occasions been taken to Saddleworth-Moore by Brady and Hindley, and was able to point out their favorite sites along A635 Road. Police immediately began to search the area and on October 16th, found an arm bone protruding from the peat, which was presumed at first to be kill brides, but which the next day was identified as that of Downey, whose body was still visually identifiable. Her mother was able to identify the clothing which had also been buried in the grave.
0: Also among the photographs in the suitcase were a number of scenes of the Moors, Smith had told police that Brady had boasted of photographic proof of multiple murders, and officers struck by Brady's decision to remove the apparently innocent landscapes from the house appealed to locals for assistance finding locations to match the photographs. On the 21st of October, they found the badly decomposed body of Kilbride, which had been identified by a piece of clothing. That same day, already being held for the murder of Evans, Brady and Hindley appeared at Hyde Magistrates Court, charged with Downey's murder. Each was brought before the court separately and remanded into custody for a week. They made a two-minute appearance on the 28th of October and were remanded again into custody. The investigating officer suspected Brady and Hindley of murdering other missing children and teenagers who had disappeared from the areas in and around Manchester over the previous few years, and the search for the bodies continued after the discovery of Kilbride's body. But with winter setting in, it was called off in November. Presented with the evidence of the tape recording, Brady admitted to taking the photographs of Downey, but insisted she had been brought to Wardle Brook Avenue by two men who had subsequently taken her away again alive. By the 2nd of December, Brady had been charged with the murders of Kilbride, Downey, and Evans. Hindley had been charged with the murders of Downey and Evans and being an accessory to the murder of Kilbride. At the committal hearing on the 6th of December, Brady was charged with the murders of Evans, Kilbride, and Downey and Hindley with the murders of Evans and Downey, as well as harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had killed Kilbride, The prosecution's opening statement was held in camera rather than in an open court, and the defense asked for a similar stipulation, but was refused. The proceedings continued before three magistrates in Hyde over an 11-day period during December, at the end of which the pair were committed for trial at Chester Assizes, Many of the photographs taken by Bradley and Hinley on the moor featured Hinley's dog, Puppet, sometimes as a puppy, to help date with the photos. Detectives had a veterinary surgeon examine the dog to determine his age. The examination required a general anesthetic from which Puppet did not recover. Hinley was furious and accused the police of murdering the dog, one of the few occasions detectives witnessed any emotional response from her. Hindley wrote to her mother, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this has. The only consolation is that some moron might have got hold of Puppet and hurt him.
1: In 1985, Brady allegedly told Fred Harrison, a journalist working for the Sunday People, that he had killed Reed and Bennett, something the police already suspected as both lived near Brady and Hindley and had disappeared at about the same time as Kilbride and Downey. Great Manchester police, reopen the investigation, now to be headed by Detective Chief Superintendent Peter Topping, head of GMP's Criminal Investigation Department. Since Brady and Henley's arrests, newspaper had been keen to connect them to other missing children and teenagers from the area. One such victim was Stephen Jennings, a three-year-old West Yorkshire boy who was last seen alive in December 1962. His body was found buried in a field in 1988, but the following year, his father, William Jennings, was found guilty of his murder. Jennifer. Tiggy, a 14-year-old girl who disappeared from an Oldham Children's home in December 1964, was mentioned in the press some 40 years later, but was confirmed by police to be alive. This followed claims in 2004 that Henley had told another inmate that she and Brady had murdered a sixth victim, a teenage girl. On July 3, 1985, DCS Topping visited Brady, then being held at HM Prison, Gartree, but found him scornful of any suggestion that he had confessed to more murders. Police nevertheless decided to resume their search of Saddleworth Moore, once more using the photos taken by Brady and Hindley to help them identify possible burial sites. In November 1986, Bennett's mother wrote to Hindley begging to know what had happened to her son, a letter that Hindley seemed to be genuinely moved by. It ended, I am a simple woman, I work in the kitchens of Christie's Hospital, it has taken me five weeks labor to write this letter because it is so important to me that it is understood by you for what it is, a plea for help. Please, Miss Henley, help me.
0: Police visited Henley, then being held in HM Prison Cookham Wood in Kent a few days after she received the letter. And although she refused to admit any involvement in the killings, she agreed to help by looking at the photographs and maps to try and identify spots she had visited with Brady. She showed particular interest in the photos of the area around Holland Brown Knoll and Shiny Brook, but she said that it was impossible to be sure of these locations without visiting them more. Home Secretary Douglas Heard agreed with DCS Topping that a visit would be worth risking despite security problems presented by the threats against Hindley. Writing in 1989, Topping said that he felt quite cynical about Hindley's motivation in helping the police, although Winnie Johnson's letter may have played a part, he believed that Hindley, knowing of Brady's precarious mental state, was concerned he might cooperate with the police and reap any available public approval benefit. On the 16th of December 1986, Hindley made a first of two visits to assist police in the search of the moor. Police closed all roads onto the moor, which was patrolled by 200 officers, some armed. Henley and her solicitor left Cookham Wood at 4.30 a.m., flew to the moor by helicopter from an airfield near Maidstone, and then were driven and walked around the area until 3 p.m. Henley had difficulty connecting what she saw to her memories, and was apparently nervous about the helicopters flying overhead. The press described the visit as a fiasco, a public stunt, and a mindless waste of money, but DCS Topping defended it saying, We need a more thorough, systematic search of the moor. It would have been impossible to carry out such a search in private. On the 19th of December, David Smith, then 38, spent about four hours on the moor helping police identify any additional areas to be searched. DCS Topping continued to visit Hindley in prison along with her solicitor, Michael Fisher, and her spiritual con- counselor, Peter Timms, who had been a prison governor before becoming a Methodist minister. On the 10th of February, 1987, Hindley formally confessed to any involvement in all five murders, but this was not made public for more than a month. The tape recording of her statement was over 17 hours long. Topping described it as a well worked out performance in which I believe she told me just as much as she wanted me to know and no more. He added that he was struck by the fact that in Hindley's telling, she was never there when the killings took place, she was in the car, over the brow of a hill, in the bathroom, and even in the case of Evan's murder, in the kitchen. He felt he had witnessed a great performance rather than a genuine confession.
1: Police visited Brady in prison again and told him of Henley's confession, which at first he refused to believe. Once presented with some of the details that Henley had provided of Reed's abduction, Brady decided that he too was prepared to confess, but on one condition that immediately afterwards he be given the means to commit suicide, a request with which was impossible for authorities to comply. At about the same time, Johnson sent Hinley another letter, again pleading with her to assist the police in finding the body of her son Keith. In the letter, Johnson was sympathetic to Hinley over the criticism surrounding her first visit. Hindley, who had not replied to the first letter, responded by thanking Johnson for both letters, explaining that her decision not to reply to the first resulted from the negative publicity that surrounded it. She claimed that, had Johnson written to her 14 years earlier, she would have confessed and helped the police. She also paid tribute to DCS Topping and thanked Johnson for her sincerity. Hindley made her second visit to the Moor in March 1987. This time, the level of security surrounding her visit was considerably higher. She stayed overnight in Manchester at the flat of a police chief in charge of GMP training at Sedgley Park Prestwich and visited the Moor twice. Hindley confirmed to police that the two areas in which they were concentrating their search, Holland Brown, Knoll, and Ho Grain, were correct, although she was unable to locate either of the graves. She did, though, later remember that as Reed was being buried, she had been sitting next to her on a patch of grass and could see the rocks of Holland Brown Knoll silhouetted against the night sky. In April 1987, news of Henley's confession became public. Amidst strong media interest, Lord Longford pleaded for her release writing that continuing her detention to satisfy mob emotion was not right. Fisher persuaded Henley to release a public statement which touched on reasons for denying her guilt previously, her religious experiences in prison, and a letter from Johnson. She said that she saw no possibility of release and also exonerated Smith from any part in the murders other than that of Evans.
0: Over the next few months, interest in the search waned, but Hinley's clue had focused efforts on a specific area. On July 1st, after more than 100 days of searching, they found Reed's body three feet below the surface and 100 yards from where Downey's had been found. Brady had been cooperating with the police for some time, and when this news reached him, he made a formal confession to DCS Topping. And in his statement, the press said that he too would help police in their search. He was taken to the moor on the 3rd of July, but seemed to lose his bearings, blaming changes in the intervening years. The search was called off at 3 p.m., by which time a large crowd of press and television reporters had gathered on the moor. DCS topping refused to allow Brady a second visit to the moor before police called off their search on the 24th of August. Brady was taken to the moor a second time on the 8th of December and claimed to have located Bennett's burial site, but the body was never found. Soon after his first visit to the moor, Brady wrote a letter to the BBC reporter giving some sketchy details of five additional deaths that he claimed to have been involved in. A man in the Piccadilly area of Manchester, another victim on Saddleworth Moor, two more in Scotland, and a woman whose body was allegedly dumped in a canal. Police failing to discover any unsolved crimes matching the details that he had supplied decided that there was insufficient evidence to launch an official investigation. Hindley told Topping that she had knew nothing of these killings. Although Brady and Hindley had confessed to the murders of Reed and Bennett, the Director of Public Prosecutions decided that nothing would be gained by a further trial. As both were already serving, life sentences, no further punishment could be inflicted. In 2003, the police launched Operation Meta and again searched the moor for Bennett's body, this time using sophisticated resources such as a U.S. reconnaissance satellite which could detect soil disturbances. In mid-2009, the GMP said that they had exhausted all avenues in the search for Bennett that only a major scientific breakthrough or flash evidence would see the hunt for his body restart, and that any further participation by Brady would be via walking through the moors virtually using a 3D model, rather than a visit by him to the moor. Donations from the public funded a search by volunteers from a Welsh search rescue team in 2010, In 2012, it was claimed that Brady may have given the details of the location of Bennett's body to a visitor, a woman who was subsequently arrested on suspicion of preventing the burial of a body without lawful excuse. But a few months later, the Crown Prosecution Service announced that there was insufficient evidence to press charges. In 2017, the police asked a court to order that the two locked briefcases owned by Brady be opened, arguing that they may contain clues of the location of Bennett's body. The application was denied on the grounds that the prosecution was likely to yield no result.
1: The victims were five children, Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans, aged between 10 and 17, at least four of whom were sexually assaulted. The bodies of two of the victims were discovered in 1965, in graves dug on Saddleworth Moor. A third grave was discovered there in 1987, more than 20 years after Brady and Hindley's trial. Bennett's body is also thought to be buried there, but despite repeated searches, it remains undiscovered. The pair were charged only for the murders of Kilbride, Downey, and Evans, and received life sentences under a whole life tariff. The investigation was reopened in 1985 after Brady was reported as having confessed to the murders of Reed and Bennett. After confessing to these additional murders, Brady and Hindley were taken separately to Saddleworth Moor to assist in the search for the graves. Characterized by the press as the most evil woman in Britain, Hindley made several appeals against her life sentence, claiming that she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society. But she was never released she died in 2002 aged 60 after serving 36 years in prison brady was diagnosed as a psychopath in 1985 and confined in the high security ashworth hospital he made it clear that he never wished to be released and repeatedly asked to be allowed to die he died in 2017 at ashworth aged 79 the murders were the result of what Malcolm McCullough, professor at forensic psychiatry at Cardiff University, described as a concatenation of circumstances. The trial judge, Mr. Justice Fenton Atkinson, described Brady and Hindley in his closing remarks as two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. Their crimes were the subject of extensive worldwide media coverage.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of PaTune. Hot is updated on a weekly basis, so be sure to tune in next week.